morning, Calvary family. How are you? Welcome to each of you in the room today. Welcome to you and to our online family. I'm so glad that you were able to join us as well this morning. I know that God has something for each of you today. I know that in our world right now, there are a lot of questions about life. There are a lot of problems that people are facing, right? Uh, nothing new under the sun. I mean, it seems constant. People will continue to struggle um, with different areas of life, different challenges, decisions. Uh, those decisions, some of them are political, and we see that in our world today. Some of those are deeply personal, and maybe you're going through something like that in your life. Uh, I'm still, I, I might even say, silly enough to believe that Jesus is the answer to all those problems. And the reason I feel that way uh, is because this passage that we'll read this morning from Ephesians chapter 1, it, it goes back to the root of who you are as an individual, as a being created in the image of God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's how you've been made. You've been made with heart, you've been given a soul, you've been given a mind, and you have strength. And all of those are who you are made to be in this world to serve a living God who actually has the answers to whatever challenge and whatever issue it is that you might face. So get your Bibles. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 1. We're in our summer book club. So we take a book of the Bible in the summer and we walk through it every verse. Every verse. And we're doing that through Ephesians this summer. Last week we talked about the blessing of salvation. And I want you to understand what it means to be saved, to be rescued by God through specifically His Son, Jesus Christ. That is a blessing. We, we talk about the blessings in our life. Uh, we say that word a lot in our culture down here. Be blessed. We want you to be blessed. Bless you. We say that a lot. But one of the greatest blessings that we overlook is the blessing of salvation. And when you look at the first few verses of Ephesians, you see that salvation is a blessing not to be taken for granted. Salvation is the greatest blessing that God has reached out to us. We talked about that today. Today, as we talk about how to solve some of the problems, perhaps, that you face, that you see, some of the issues that we're wrestling through in our country, and yes, even around the world, some of the things that stand out. Today, I want to talk to you about how that salvation then affects your life. And I want to talk to you today about what it means to live the real Christian life, what it means for Christians to really live a Christian life. You see, here's the thing. If you take a lot of the challenges that we see in the world today, many of them, maybe they are public challenges or perhaps they are private challenge. Every challenge that you and I face today as people, it can be solved if Christians will live as Christians. The Christian life is the answer for the problems that people face and live and see today. And the Apostle Paul, when he wrote these words to the people who believed in Jesus at Ephesus, back in those times, in the Roman times, he gave them a key to what a Christian life would look like. And actually, he uses a word. I love the word, so we're going to use that word this morning. He uses the word enlightened. That the Christian life is the enlightened life. Now think about that word for a moment. Um, we live in a generation, right, that believes it's enlightened in so many ways. Enlightened how to view the world. Enlightened how to be able to solve problems with information or perspective. I, I tell my children this quite often. 
If we're not careful, we in this generation will become so arrogant that we think we are the only people to ever walk the face of the earth and therefore the only ones to be able to solve the world's problems. You realize people have been dealing with this in every generation, different challenges, different perspectives, different backgrounds throughout all of history. And if we're not careful, we will think we're right today and everyone that went before us is wrong. An enlightened life will actually be able to say, no, what are the substantive answers that stand the test of time? And the Christian life provides a substantive answer that will stand the test of time. Do you realize the blessing of your salvation for those of you who cling to Christ as your Savior? It gives you a substance to provide an enlightened answer for the world to be able to see. Let's look at that in Ephesians chapter 1 as we read together verse 15 through the end of the chapter. So we conclude chapter 1 today. We read this. Paul says this, For this reason I too, listen, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you. So after he talks to them about the blessing of salvation, he then begins to say, I have heard... Of the faith in the Lord Jesus that exists among you. In other words, these Christians stand out. They provide something different and he's heard about it. He goes on and says, not only have I heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you. I've heard of the love that you have for all the saints. Therefore, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Look at this in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Paul prays this for these Christians. Why? So that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the boundless greatness of his power toward us who believe? Therefore, he says, these things are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that is named. And not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. Let me read that again. Talking about Jesus. God put all things in subjection under the feet of Christ. And he made him head over all things. Look at this. To the church. God made Christ head over all things, and he gives that power to Christians, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
Now, when I read that passage, I begin to move from the blessing of what it means to be saved. And that is a huge blessing. Last week, what I love about church, both in this room and in our online family, there were people last, right, last week who got right with God because they understood what it meant to be saved. What it meant by faith to ask Christ to save them. Step one. But then there is step two for all of us. For anyone in this room, child of God, claiming the name of Christ, or in our online family, anyone claiming the name of Christ, as it's been said, God loves us too much to save us, but leave us the way we were. God loves us too much to give us this great blessing of salvation, this huge gift to rescue us from our sins, to cleanse our hearts, to give us a new life, only to have us sit on it. I mean, the reality of that, it would be like a professional athlete who, who does so well, they train themselves throughout high school and then they work so hard through college and they get this huge contract like they've worked forever for this and they can help all the family they can change their life and they get to the professional level ready to make a difference and they're like no that's good I signed the paper and they never play a game they never keep the same fervency that they had to train, to prepare, to get ready for. They never appreciate the opportunity that's been laid right there in front of them. And they squander the whole thing and they never play. And they get cut. And then next thing you know, you read about them and, wait a minute, what happened? That's equivalent to our Christian life when we receive the gift of salvation, which is a blessing. But then we don't understand what's next. And the greatest answer to the world's problem is the Christian life, the enlightened life. So I want to give you this as our life lesson today. Take this passage, break it down for some of these powerful things that identify you and I as believers. And then we'll close today by looking at the power that he's placed in your life as a member of his body, the church. Life lesson, Christian salvation. It is the reflection of a life enlightened by the grace of God. Remember, we talked about the grace of God, his kindness last week. Paul highlighted that. Well, salvation is the reflection of a life that's been enlightened by the grace of God who empowered his son to change our lives. A Christian life is a life that has been enlightened because the grace of God has been applied to their life. And their life begins to change because of Jesus. And to be enlightened means that you see things differently. It means that you respond to things differently. Now, this is a work in progress for everyone. Amen? Every child of God that I know, it is a work in progress. Jesus didn't ask for perfection. He asked for your faith. He didn't ask for you to become perfect. He's the only one that's perfect. But he gives you a pathway to trust him and therefore for your life to change. He doesn't want us to stay the same. He's given us this great glorious, powerful salvation, and there are some things that describe it. The first half of this passage talks about the enlightened life, the life that follows Christ, the life that has received God's grace and has been empowered by his son to change. And this is what an enlightened life like, looks like. And this is why I say the Christian life is the answer 
for whatever problem it is that you are facing personally or that we are facing in our world today. Because an enlightened life looks different than perhaps most of what you see in your world and that I see in mine. First of all, an enlightened life, Paul talks about their faith in the Lord. And an enlightened life is a life that trusts God by faith. An enlightened life understands someone whose heart has been opened, whose eyes have been opened by Christ, someone who's been rescued by Jesus. They understand that salvation occurred by faith. You're going to get to read another wonderful part of Ephesians next week. So I don't want to jump ahead too far in that. But you're going to understand that it is faith that saves you, not your works. It's not how good we are. It's not if we have this cosmic scale that some people believe in, in balance. If we do more good, then maybe God will love us and accept us into heaven. No, we won't get into heaven regardless of how much we good, how much good we do. It doesn't mean you should go out and be bad, right? All of you people out there, it doesn't mean that. But it's just not the way that God measures salvation. We do good because we are saved. That's why we do good. And why do we do good? Why do we try to be good people? Why do we try to do that? Because we have by faith received the salvation that God gives that we did not deserve. That we could not earn. That we do not in any way try to prove to him, God, hey, let me into heaven because I was a good person. Never get in that way. You only get in. By faith in the Lord Jesus. And what Paul said to the Ephesians is, your lives are different. You are enlightened people because we hear about your what? Faith. We hear about how much you trust in Jesus. And therefore, because you trust in Jesus, how different you look. How much of a difference it's making in your world. And he wrote this to these Christians in Ephesus. Who by the way, when you go back and look at Acts 18 and 19, you will see. Yes, they were persecuted. You will see that these Christians in Ephesus were looked at as different. But it didn't stop them from trusting in Christ. All these years later when Paul would pin this, he helps them see. Look, you're still trusting in the Lord and people hear about your faith and your lives are making a difference. We hear about the faith in the Lord Jesus that exists among you. Uh, someone asked me um, recently as we were talking about this next project, which is not just about our facility. It's about us moving forward as a church in all ways to be ready for what God has for us next. And somebody asked me, yeah, okay, so I did the math. I see that we raised a little over 100000 right up front to get the projects around here started. By the way, I don't know how many you want to play in the sandbox, but it's a little inconvenient, right? It's the, you normally park out front, and you can't come in that way today. you got to walk around, and, yeah, and next week, these are going to be gone, right? We're going to work through a little bit of that. We raised $100,000 to get the work started. Guess what we're doing? We got the work started. Um, we have pledged up to this point. We had pledged about $150,000, and the project is about $500,000 for phase one. So that's half. Do the math. But you know what? It's funny because I said, I just think God's going to come through. I believe him. I believe that we have to do it. I believe it's the right thing to do. I know he's put it in our heart. By the way, prior to the pandemic, 
for those of you who perhaps missed it, you don't realize that there were a lot of leadership involved, even in sitting in this room and in our online family, who were ready to commit, ready to do the project. And then we just got shut down in the world. And then you come back and go, wow, um, there's a pandemic and, and this is a horrible time. I mean, I've had some people say, I, I can't believe that you're doing it. Like, Great, but I have faith. I have faith this is the right thing for this church, the right thing for us as God's people. We have to do this. We are going to do this. We are a light and a beacon of hope to so many here in our community, not just in this room, but for many of you who've been listening for a long time now online. We do this by faith in God. You overcome problems by faith in God. You are victorious in your life by faith in God. It's not always what looks right in the eyes of the world. It's what looks right in the eyes of God. And when you trust him and you commit to that, your life is different. And therefore their faith, your faith, the power of an enlightened life... It just makes a bigger difference in this world. Notice the other thing that Paul says they heard about. Not only their faith, they heard about their love for one another. Love is another characteristic of the enlightened life. And do you know what's missing to solve a lot of problems in our world today? I mean, honestly, if you look at it, if you break it all down, and I know that even in this room and in our community, there are a lot of people from a lot of backgrounds and a lot of different perspectives but if we approached our conversations, our actions, with Christian love toward one another, we'd probably do a little better job of solving our problems, don't you think? I mean, now, I can't speak to those who claim the name of Christ but don't live it. I can't speak to those who grew up in church but never exercised personally faith. But I can speak to those who claim the name of Christ, who claim faith, who say, yes, I am a Christian and I belong to the family of God. Listen, we can solve our problems by exercising love toward one another and toward those around us in our life. Love is one of the great factors of an enlightened heart and an enlightened life because you have received love. You've received the love of God, and once you have received the grace, the kindness, the mercy, and the love of God, guess what? When you realize what God has done to save you, you're a little more willing, if you are a Christian, to show love to other people around you. That's how the world solves problems. That's how Christians can solve problems. Now, we don't see that. I mean, I get just as worked up watching any form of news today, just like you, right? I mean, I need words of encouragement and hope. But do you know where I'm finding them more often than not? From God's word. From God's people. From people who show love. From people who show Christian love. From people who understand where God has brought them by faith where he's brought them out of, where he's changing them, where he's moving them to by faith. And because of his love for them, they show love to me. You know what? We can work together. We can figure some stuff out. We can solve things. And in this passage, Paul says this church was a group of people that were enlightened because they showed faith in God. And they were enlightened because they showed love for one another. By the way. In their generation, go back and look at Acts 18 and 19. And what you will see is that it wasn't some sweet love fest for the church in Ephesus. Guess what? They were persecuted. 
And in the midst of their persecuted lives, they showed the love of Christ. Wow! Now that's hard, isn't it? When it's not going your way, when you are angry, when you do have an axe to grind, when you have something you have to say. But to temper that and measure that with the love of Christ, the church of Ephesus did it. They changed one of the major hubs of the Roman Empire because these Christians were making such a difference by faith and love that it began to change those around them. Everybody's hearing about it. What if the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God today, begin to actually respond in a loving way first to one another, but then also to our world? I'm telling you, the Christian life, the enlightened life, looks a whole lot different and makes a bigger impact than we could ever imagine. Paul writes not only that a life that's enlightened by Christ is a life of faith and a life of love, it is a life that is thankful, a thankful life. What are you thankful for in your salvation? We talked about the blessing of salvation, but I, I find this. I, this is one of those lessons that I drill home as a dad. I know we're approaching Father's Day next week, and this is one of those things that I drill home in the, in the hearts of my kids. Be thankful for what you have. Be thankful for what you have. It's not comparing to what someone else has or what someone else doesn't have. You be thankful for what you have, because when you can be thankful... For what God has given you. There is a scriptural principle at work. When you're thankful for what you have. God then puts you in a position to give you something else. Every time. When you're thankful. But when you take for granted what you have. Everything that you have can be taken away in that moment. Being thankful for what you have. Uh, this week I know uh, we just. It's like, it's like someone just flipped the switch. Um, and it turned to summer here in New Orleans, right? I mean, like, it's like all of a sudden it got hot. And it's funny because in our household, um, we, we knew what God had said. So we made a commitment to the church and we gave it. And this week, our air went out. I mean, last Sunday after church, it's like, okay, the air in our house went out. And, and, and the guy said, well, I can't get there till Wednesday. So we tolerated till Wednesday. Um, got there Wednesday. Hey, this this um, this part of your unit is gone. You're going to need a whole new system. You've been. To it, maybe on Friday. So we're going through it. You know, you know how hot it was. Well, I call them on Friday. Well, maybe Saturday, but honestly, it's going to be Thursday of this week. You know, I'm going to tell you something. I'm grateful for air condition. I'm grateful in this room today that, you know, it, it's cool. I hope that you're grateful at home for where you're sitting or where you're watching. Thankfulness overcomes some of your greatest challenges. And I can tell you what, there are a lot of people dealing with a lot worse situations than a lack of air condition. You know, we can adopt with some fans and some window units and we can get by in our house because, hey, you know what? Thankful we got a roof over our head. Thankful we have, we have food. Thankful that we we're able to give to the Lord. And you know what? I'm going to get it fixed. You think I'm not going to get it fixed? <laughs> it's almost like name your price because we need air condition, right? <laughs> they kind of get you on that deal, right? Gratitude is something that reflects the heart of a Christian. It doesn't mean that we always like what's going on. 
I mean, it's hot. I don't like not having air conditioning in the house. It's not fun. But I'm thankful. I'm thankful because I know that there are greater things that matter more. The relationships that I have with people that I love and that love me. The opportunities that God has given to me, that God has given to you. The opportunities to do things that other people might not be able to get to do so that you can move your life forward so that we can accomplish things. Gratitude. Being thankful for the people in your life for the places that you get to go, for the opportunities that are before you, a heart of thankfulness. Paul acknowledged these were people of faith, love, and thankfulness. He was thankful for them. He even prayed for them. Who's praying for you in your life? No, I'm, I'm asking you a question. Who do you have that's so thankful for you that they're praying for you? Paul was so thankful for this church that he prayed for them. He made mention of them. And who are you praying for? Not only who's praying for you, they're thankful. But who are you so thankful for that you just pray for them? They don't even have to know that you're praying for them. But you're thankful for them. You pray for them. That's one of the keys to the Christian life and to solving the issues is praying through them. Because we're thankful that we know a God who can help fix them and solve them. Paul also says that the Christian life is not just one of faith, love, and thankfulness. It's a life of wisdom. He says, I pray for you that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. The Christian life is a life of wisdom. Do you know what most people use to solve their problems, or to respond to other people. Do you know what most of us use when we face our issues in life? We use our emotions. And our emotions are a part of who we are. They are our feelings. And those feelings are very real. They can, they can be feelings of euphoria, of excitement, of accomplishment, or they can be feelings of discouragement and depression and even death. Those feelings come against everyone. They are up and they are down. They are all over the road. And let me ask you this. If they're up one minute and down the next, and those are the basis of how we make choices in life, do you think that we as people are going to make very wise choices if we choose how to solve things based in our emotions alone? No. I mean, some days we feel good. Some days we feel bad. But Christ gives you another way to process how to make choices. Wisdom. Wisdom over emotions. Revelation. Revelation of who he is inside of us and what he wants to do through us. When we make our choices and we solve our problems based in wisdom and in the revelation of who we are as his children, we are going to do a better job of processing information that comes at us. But when we process by emotions alone, we're going to say the wrong things. We're going to do the wrong things. We're going to be dominated by anxiety and stress and discouragement. Everything's going to look negative. Everything's going to fall apart. But when we operate by the wisdom of God, who was wise enough, look at what it says, wise enough to reveal his plan of salvation to you. 
His plan of salvation is not based in his emotions. His plan of salvation to rescues is based in the wisdom and the foreknowledge of God. He knows that to change your life, he had to send Jesus and to rescue us from our own way of doing things that he would reveal to us this mysterious grace that would rescue us in all seasons of life. Not just for salvation for then, but for salvation right now. Do you need God's salvation working out in any situation in your life right now? Process that by wisdom. Ask God for wisdom. Ask someone who follows Jesus for wisdom. Don't just read the paper. Don't just read the social media post. Don't just read what someone else or your best friend says because they agree with you. I heard a great statement this morning. Someone says, I love somebody, and though I will not agree with them, I do love them enough to stand with them and continue to tell them the truth. Wow, that's a real friend. That's a real Christian answer. That's not just, let me make sure I say what you want to hear so that you'll feel good. No, let me help you along the way process with wisdom and God's knowledge so that you can be more successful in your life as a follower of Jesus. Wow, that is powerful. And when you look at God giving us the gift of wisdom, of revelation, he has given us something that is powerful. Of course, he says, I pray that your, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. So hope is the other characteristic of the Christian life, hope. The hope of his calling. There is always hope when you trust in Jesus. There is always hope when you know that God can come through. There is always hope that you have been called, you have been saved when you don't feel like it, when you don't want to feel like it, when you're battling through it. There is hope for you because that's what God has given to you as his child when you responded with a yes to his son, Jesus. There is the hope of his calling. And then, I don't want to take this out of context, but I think this last part of an enlightened life is very important. There is the riches of his glory. Child of God, Christian, I'm not the peddler of the popular gospel to get your dollar like some people are out there. I don't look at it that way, but I do know this. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there are the riches of the glory of heaven credited to your account. The riches of his glory. Now that does not mean the riches of this world all the time. A matter of fact, most of the time, people who get rich in this world get very poor toward God. They don't reflect faith because they don't need to. I can handle it. I can cover it. They don't reflect love because they don't want to and they don't have to. I don't have to love you if I can pay for it or if I can solve it myself. They are not people of hope because they can fix it all with their own money. They're not people who are thankful because they don't have to be thankful. They've got it fixed. Riches of his glory must mean, therefore, then something else. And I can tell you this in pastoring the church and working in ministry for almost 25 years. Here's what I've seen. Some of the richest people in this world are the people who seem to have the least in this world, but yet they have the strongest faith. 
They know that God is going to come through for them, and God is still in charge. This morning, even before church, um, I had a blessed conversation with a couple of our church members, and they are facing problems, and you know what? I want to fix them. I do. I want to have the answer, and I don't. But one of them said, but God is still in charge. And I thought, you know what? That makes my morning. The riches of his glory. The riches of God's glory are attached to every child of God who genuinely believes. And you know what? That does mean at some points in life, he's going to come through for you in a financial way, in a practical way, in a physical way. There are many of you who are sitting in this room and you've gone through some challenges with your health. And you're sitting in this room. There are many of you online who you've gone through some difficulties and you're still with us. That is the riches of God's glory credited to your account. The riches of God's kindness toward those who love him. The riches of God's goodness towards those who trust him by faith. And Paul says an enlightened life is someone who experiences the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Do you know what an inheritance is, by the way? An inheritance is something you don't get until someone passed away, right? And, and like, yeah, don't you all wish, like, who's that long-lost person that could pass away that I don't know so that I could get this inheritance? But you would feel that way about that long-lost person that you don't know because you really don't want that to happen to someone that you do know, that you do value, that you do love. Your inheritance always is something that has to wait for an event to occur before you can receive it. Well, you know, our inheritance, the riches of his glory, is a heavenly inheritance. And so many times we're living in this world as if this is our inheritance. As if this is the only thing that matters. But the enlightened life knows, Jesus, my inheritance in the riches of glory is truly glorious. And it is something that's heavenly. And I can tell you something, if I trust you now in the midst of difficult times, challenging times, and I trust you and I show the signs of an enlightened life, then I can tell you what, your inheritance, I, I just know this, you're going to be blown away when you see it, when you get there. It doesn't mean he's not going to be faithful today. It just means whatever he's done to be faithful to you today is going to be exponentially better when you get to heaven to see now, don't rush to get there. I'm not rushing to get there either, right? Because there's some joy in the journey. There's some peace in the moment of being able to trust God now. But when you do get to heaven, when he does call you home, which is his prerogative to do, there's something great about getting there. That's what enlightened hearts and enlightened eyes know. When you live that way, it's different. Now, I have to finish in the next few minutes but I'm kind of enjoying the air condition, so I may go a few minutes longer, right? <laughs> Not only does Paul talk about a life that's enlightened, but how does all of this happen? And I don't want to miss the important part because I've talked about your life, but how does that happen? Let's go back to how it really happens, and that is because of Jesus, a Savior who is empowered to give all of this to you. We don't receive this on our own. All of the first part makes us feel really good. It makes us really thankful. But we didn't receive that on our own. It was given. It was credited. And it was credited because someone had the authority to give that to us. And that's Jesus, our empowered Savior. How did he get the authority and the right to give us to this? And why do we worship him and live by faith? Number one, 
He is a Savior who was raised from the dead. Try that one on for size. <laughs> He's a Savior that was raised from the dead. I've done a lot of funerals. The first one that somebody jumps up out of the casket is going to freak me out a little bit. Or the first one where all that dust and all those particles are put back together into some form. That's really going to be a cool trick, right? <laughs> Only Jesus did that. And he was raised from the dead. That gives him the authority to enact all of the things that we previously talked about in your life. If he has the authority to be raised from the dead by the glory of God, by the power of the Father, and he's a living Savior, then he has the authority to work out all the other details of your life. Isn't that good? That's who he is. He's an empowered Savior. He is seated at the right hand of God. The right hand of God. Now, this is not a slight to all of you lefties out there, right? Um, but the right hand symbolized in Scripture the seat and the place of honor. It's referenced a lot um, in the ancient uh, kings and where the throne would sit. The person at the right hand had the ear of the king. They had the place of honor. They had the place of power. Therefore, this picture and this image is given that God sits on the throne and that Jesus resurrected and therefore ascended to heaven is at the right hand of God. Therefore, he gets all of the full authority and effect in our lives of God because he's at the right hand of God. It's a very symbolic gesture that helps us understand that Jesus has the power to enact all of this goodness in our lives. He not only sits at the right hand of God, but the Bible says he sits at the right hand in heavenly places. The problem with a lot of the challenges that we see in the world is that people sitting in earthly places try to peddle earthly answers that don't work. But Jesus gives a heavenly answer from a heavenly throne. And therefore, if the heavenly answer from a heavenly throne, the things that we've read about that Paul describes are true in our lives today, then those answers are divine. They are better than what people could give us. They are better than what any world leader could give us. And you see that leaders of the world, they rise and they fall. They're good and they're bad. They have moments where they shine and they have moments where they stumble. To put all of our faith in the people and the organizations and the, the things that we trust in that are human is to miss the answers that come from above. To miss the answers that come from heaven. Jesus, raised from the dead, sitting at the right hand of God in heaven. That's a throne that is above every other throne. It's a heavenly throne. It is a rule that is above every other ruler. Now, I know a lot of people read about a lot of people and, and see a lot about a lot of people who think that they are God on earth, that their perspective is God on earth. And listen, uh, that goes across the board. It doesn't matter which persuasion and perspective you come from. You look hard enough and you're going to see people and they act and think that they are God on earth. I don't put my faith in any God on earth. I don't put my trust. You don't put your trust, Christian, in any God on earth. The rule and authority that comes to your life comes from a heavenly Savior. Who, by the way, is the perfect example of all the character traits that we listed earlier.
He lives them out perfectly and gives us the model to trust. And therefore, we have to trust the rule that comes from a Savior who's empowered, who is in heaven. Notice the Bible says, His rule is far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every name that is named. His rule is far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, every name that is named. It even goes on and says that he has put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, I've referenced this before in earlier messages. I mean, it's kind of a humbling thing to think. But the earth is just good enough to be the footstool of God. (laughs) I mean, every leader that raises themselves up to be the authority over your life, the perspective that tells you how to act or behave or believe, anyone that does that is still way beneath the authority of Christ. Everything is beneath the authority of Christ. His authority, his rule, his power is above all rule and authority. Now let me play that out in your life today. Because what we see in the world today is, um, wow, um, Christians get put down a lot by powerful people. People who have strength, influence, who have money, who have perspective that is enlightened in their eyes. You see that a lot today. And if you're not careful as a Christian today, what is your response? What does it seem that you are told as a Christian today? Be silent and keep it in church. If you'll keep it in church, you won't get censored. If you keep it in church, we won't persecute you. If you'll be silent, we won't bring out even the things in your past that you would be ashamed of or where you're wrong, right? You have the powers of this world constantly working against you. How do you stand against that? How do you stand against a foe who doesn't reflect the character traits that we looked at earlier or the character traits of Christ? How do you stand up against that? How do you keep faith in the moment of that? By remembering that the one that you serve, the one that saved you, the one that loves you, he is the one with all authority. Everyone else and everything else is beneath him, under his feet. He is the one who will ultimately make all things right. He is the one who will, at some point, make things true. He will reveal light in the midst of darkness. He will definitely set free those who trust in him. He is that kind of God. And as Paul writes this out, and he says, he has put him... In this age and in the age to come over everything, Jesus has the authority now and forever. Now, perhaps like other Christians, you might say, well, how does Jesus' authority work today? It seems like this group has the authority or this country has the authority or these people have the authority. The character traits of Christ that we looked at earlier that are reflected in the life of Christian, those are the ones who really say, Nope, that that world, those people, those types of governments or those types of situations, they will not rule me. It is the faith, the love, the wisdom, the thankfulness, the mercy, the, the kindness of God. Those things rule in my life. And therefore, yeah, it may not look real powerful today, 
but I'm going to stand out for the right reason because I follow the one who now is in charge and who ultimately forever will be in charge. And who did he give that to? This is the final thing, so I know we're ready to close. I'm still enjoying the air condition, but we're ready to close. Who did he give that to? The last words of chapter 1 say that Christ has this authority and he is head over all things. But who did he give that authority to? To the church. Now the church is not a title. That's where people have gotten mistaken in history. Well, it's this church. It's the Roman Catholic Church or the Universal Church or it's, or it's this building or it's that church that's the most popular or this evangelist that's the most popular or these people that follow that pastor that we hear more about or this person that that's only a physical representation of the church. Do you know who the church is? Child of God, saved by Jesus, you are part of the body of Christ, the church. And everything that we read, now I realize it took a minute to get there, but this is where Paul finishes. He finishes chapter 1 as he's encouraging the Christians in Ephesus living under persecution in their generation. He, he then ends here and he says, listen, all of these things are true for you. For you and you and you and you and you and you and you. And you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you. For anyone who's a follower of Jesus Christ, who by faith, hope, and love have placed their life in the hands of the Savior, who believe that God's grace and mercy has enlightened them and therefore changed the way that they are supposed to live in this world and is changing them so that in this world they make a difference, they have all of this authority, all of this power credited to them because they are a part in this world of the body of Christ. That fills everything. The body of Christ, it's not just limited to those of us in this room and online today. The body of Christ is worldwide. The body of Christ is powerful. We may not feel powerful, we may not look powerful, we may be persecuted and put down by the authorities of this world. But an enlightened life realizes the real authority lies with the one who's in charge of it all, the one that we follow, Jesus. The enlightened life realizes that the answers that people need are not hate, bigotry, and bias. They're not being able to force down others' perspective and put them down to say, nope, this is needing to be accepted and done this way. You look and you read between the lines on all of that and you will see everything anti-Christ. But the church, people who say, Jesus, you exercised all of this authority to save me. And then you gave me the opportunity to show that to my world. Those people, salt and light, those people are going to make a difference. So the question as we go through even today is, in your life today, when you think about the challenges that you face, we're not trying to solve anybody else's problems yet. Your face the things that you feel, the things that you're working through, the things that you, are you facing those problems with the authority and the perspective of Christ? Are you facing them as a child of God or are your emotions getting the best of you? Are you facing them with the wisdom of God or are you facing them based on the feelings of today or someone else? Are you responding to people with love or hate? Are you responding to people with truth 
or something that you've just been told or that someone said just to support you? Are you responding with your authority? Or do you deal with them with a God who says, I can fix this for you? That's what Paul writes to a group of Christians way back then. And I think those words, that's why we selected this book for us this summer. Because as we continue to walk forward in life and look forward to what's next in our lives, I think it's a great reminder for you and me. Amen? So child of God, here's my prayer for you. Be enlightened as Paul even prayed for them. That the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know all of the goodness of God for those who are in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your church. I thank you that your church is made up of your children. Far and wide, all across this world, people who realize their deep need for you and your deep love for them. I pray for all of my friends in this room and in our online family today. God, you know what they need. You know what they're dealing with. And you know the answers, God, that are even within them that you have placed there. Answers of faith, answers of hope, answers of love, answers of thankfulness, answers of wisdom, answers that are from you. So God, fill all of your children today with your spirit. Anoint them afresh even in this moment. God, give them these things to live out in their world so that they may live enlightened lives that have been empowered by the one who's in charge of you. And I thank you for this moment that we have today to be in your word and to worship together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being with us today and for tuning in online. Thank you for being a part of All Things Next here at Calvary as we continue to look forward to making an impact in our community. As you'll see this summer, a lot of things will change. So I want to say thank you for continuing to be faithful in your gifts of your tithes and offerings and then in asking the one who's in charge, which is what I do, the one who's in charge. God also find a way to help me give offerings that will help this church continue to move forward. For those of you who are still praying about your pledge, and I know that some of you are, because you've told me. Some of you have said, hey, I don't even understand how to make that pledge, and I'm not ready to make that gift or have it deducted yet. Look, stop by our welcome booth in the back. You can talk or you can send us emails. We'll help you with that process. We just believe by faith that God has placed us in a unique position here in New Orleans to make a difference in Jesus' name. So we're going to do everything we can by faith to make that happen. And I hope that you will continue to be a part of it. Until we see you again next week, may God bless you. May his face smile upon you. May he give you the greatest grace. And may you experience his peace. God bless you all and good day.